Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Jennifer Pomeranz, who is director of legal initiatives for the Rudd Center and has a background in both the law and public health and has done some very innovative work on application of the law into issues of obesity and nutrition. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. So attorneys have become, and legal experts in general, have become interested in this issue of obesity and nutrition increasingly, it seems, especially in the last five years or so. Um, And I see this as a very positive development because there's so many interesting ways the laws might apply here. But could you give us a few examples of the types of things that people are getting into who have a legal background? Yes, it's very exciting to see the field opening up as it has. Um, There are a few issues that we really are seeing lawyers address, especially in zoning issues and conditional licensing, which would basically be a way, a method to change the food environment through regulating the retail establishments in terms of their proximity to other locations such as schools. Um, So here we'd be specifically talking about maybe locating fast food restaurants away from schools. Um, And those are, that's a type of zoning issue. And then another area, conditional licensing, where you, where they would be mimicking the tobacco uh, world of regulation by trying to have conditions on the license of retail establishments to sell certain products, again, maybe near schools, or a lot of ways to try to change the food environment. Uh, and other ways that we're seeing lawyers very much involved is in labeling issues. Food products seem to be um, really covered with health claims, nutrition claims. A lot of them are questionable. Uh, many of them are misleading. And we're finally seeing lawyers really getting on board to try to fight this industry practice of proliferation of misleading and questionable claims. So I, I'd say those are two areas where I'd see a lot of lawyers involved. And I know these are just examples because there are a lot of different ways the law might be involved. And I'd like to talk about some of your work in particular because I find it very interesting and, and important in the obesity area. And let's begin first with the uh, First Amendment and the protection of commercial speech. Could you give us just a quick primer on what that's all about? Then we can talk about specific applications. Sure. The First Amendment uh, protects speech in general. It was originally thought of as a protection of political speech or religious speech, which is core speech. Uh, the Supreme Court determined in the 1970s that this, the First Amendment also protects commercial speech. Commercial speech has uh, been defined as the proposal of a commercial transaction. And we think of that as advertising, labeling. It's basically the way that com- um, manufacturers communicate about their products to the general public. Um, and increasingly, the Supreme Court has in- has provided more and more protection for commercial speech, which for consumer protection advocates and public health advocates is becoming uh, disconcerting because they're protecting the right of corporations to engage in speech, uh, such as marketing and labeling, more and more, uh, which puts maybe the consumer protection and public health advocates at a disadvantage. So what would be some examples of the court making decisions that would favor commercial interests over public health ones? Well, a lot of um, times the government seeks to regulate labels or marketing to protect children. Uh, A lot of examples have stemmed from tobacco or alcohol industry practices, marketing in areas where children are located or actually directly to children. Governments have tried to protect children by restricting the ability of these commercial entities to 
to market in areas where children are or directly to children. And unfortunately, the courts are increasingly striking down these types of laws. A very famous example was in Massachusetts. Uh, there was regulation of tobacco ads near schools, and the Supreme Court found that the tobacco companies have a right to market to adults. And so it's unfortunate that children might be seeing these ads, but since they have a right to market to adults, that uh, the government couldn't protect children in the manner that it wanted to. And now this is becoming more of a concern when it comes to food because now the industry is really um, motivated to keep marketing products, especially food, um, because it's legal for children to buy them. So it's even more difficult for the government to try to regulate the speech that is directed to children about food products. And so now we see companies really, really marketing directly to children and having no concern about it. Um, and th all indication points to that a lot of courts would uphold, uphold their ability to do so in, in most cases. So are there any legal angles that may work here? Um, or should we just throw up our hands and say that it's pretty much no holds barred because the companies can do just about whatever they want? No, I think we have a lot of great um, strategies. Some of them are directly with the First Amendment. So the, all the evidence indicates that young children, especially those under eight, do not understand the persuasive intent of marketing, which means they can't understand the factor from fiction, the puffery and persuasion from fact. And so I would argue that this is an illegal, um, I'm sorry, an unfair and deceptive method of marketing to children because they don't understand that it's commercial speech. So if they can't differentiate between factual speech and commercial speech, it's really an unfair method to uh, propose a commercial uh, transaction with them. And I would say that it's really deceptive. And so because it's deceptive, it wouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. The First Amendment does not protect deceptive, misleading, and um, speech for profit. So I would argue that children can be protected from this type of speech, and, and government should regulate. The FTC really has a role to play here. Uh, there's a lot of barriers, barriers to their own rulemaking abilities, but if those were removed, they could regulate marketing to young children. And then other areas that we, that the government could get involved is locate, locating the speech in areas that are not where children are. So in schools especially, the government can restrict all marketing to children in schools and protect children from harmful effects of marketing. So those are a couple of examples. So it sounds like one ticket to um, government doing something about marketing is to prove that it's unfair or deceptive. Um, well, how does a court look at those two terms, and what sort of things might a court determine are unfair or deceptive? You know, actually, I use the term unfair here in the First Amendment discussion, which was really uh, misplaced. Deceptive is is where we're, we're looking. Mm -hmm. The FTC has jurisdiction over unfair and deceptive um, acts and practices. Now, if it wasn't for the fact that in 1981, Congress withdrew the the FTC's authority to regulate marketing to children under its deceptive, I'm sorry, under its unfair prong, then we would really be able to talk about both. But because the FTC really only has the authority under its deceptive prong, we would focus on that. And But this is actually an advantage for us because the, the First Amendment does not protect deceptive speech but it's unclear where unfair speech falls under F the First Amendment jurisprudence. So by addressing the deceptive speech to young children, we the FTC does have the authority to do that, and the First Amendment does not protect deceptive speech. So that's where that would be the best angle. So are there any legal ground rules about what constitutes deceptive? 
actually, this is an area of law that's not very well developed, but if you have studies, which is where we would call for the researchers to show that the advertising is deceptive, courts do accept those studies and would likely be able to rule based on those studies. Um, courts look at studies, they appreciate them, and if there are studies to show that marketing is deceptive, this would be a real angle. So, for example, if health claims on a particular product led people to believe that these things were really much healthier than they are, and studies could show that that, that was deceiving people, then a court might take that into account. Yes, and in fact, I, I think that this is one of the best angles that we have for public health and consumer protection is to really address the proliferation of claims on products. We know that claims are deceptive from studies, anecdotal evidence, and our own experiences in the supermarket. Um, but more and more studies are showing that people are persuaded that these products are healthy when in fact they're not. And uh, a great study out of the Rudd Center, Serial Facts, showed that the most unhealthy cereals had the most claims on them. So here we can see a direct um, indication that these claims are deceptive if they're leading people to purchase or think a product is healthier than it is. And I think that this is the best angle that we have. And if you've read the news lately, a lot of lawyers are taking this up, a lot of plaintiffs' groups, because the amount of claims in the marketplace are really becoming to be a point where nobody has an idea of what's healthy or not on these products. I'd like to turn um, our attention to a different topic, but an equally exciting one, and that is the role of the state attorneys general in helping deal with nutrition and obesity issues. Um, historically, the AGs have not been especially interested in this topic, although they have been in other health things, with the notable example being tobacco. Um, but now there's starting to be some interest in the the AGs in this issue, and I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about that that uh, topic and where you think it may go. The AGs uh, are the lawyers for the states, and they protect the rights of the citizens and the state's um, budget as well. Um, what's been exciting is the Vermont Attorney General really took this on as an issue that he cared about, and we're hoping that other attorneys general will get on board. But we do see indications that they care about the exact topics that we care about. They just haven't applied it directly to the food area. Many attorneys general wrote letters to the manufacturers of caffeinated alcoholic beverages saying that these were products that they did not want in, in their states. Um, and so we're hoping that they'll see other products that are very unhealthy and can cause harm to young children. Just for example, these extreme energy drinks that young teenagers are drinking. There's ER visits. It's definitely an area, a product that is a cause of concern. Um, and so that's an area that they could take on just like they did with the caffeinated alcohol beverages. But also, again, a these claims that are on products, the FDA actually does not have the authority to enforce its regulations to the extent that you would think. They ha can write letters and warn companies that they're violating regulations, but the FDA does not have the administrative authority to issue fines. And I believe this is a drawback from their authority. And this is where the AGs could really jump in and start to address the claims that are violating regulations or are misleading consumers. And the FDA has does not have the resources or authority to really address them. Um, and of course, we could see in the future, maybe the AGs would take on the health 
costs that obesity is is causing to their states um, and try to initiate an action similar to the tobacco actions, uh, a multi-state action, that we could see that in the future. And it would be very exciting, and the facts are really very similar. So it sounds like a state attorney general could have authority if some product were deemed dangerous, like caffeinated alcohol drinks as an example. But it sounds like they also have some authority over marketing practices. If Now, you, you mentioned that if something were deceptive, the federal government may have reason to take action. It do, would a state be able to do the same thing through its attorney general? Yeah, well, Yes, an, an attorney general can address deceptive practices. They have similar authority to the FTC just within their states, um, and m- most states consider their authority um, the same as the FTC's, and they are able to go against practices that um, the FTC would otherwise be able to address. Okay. Um, When you mentioned the tobacco example, you were talking about the states recovering health care costs created by tobacco, and that was really a litigation effort. I mean, it never went to trial because the tobacco company settled for a massive amount of money, but that was a litigation effort. Uh, do you see that as a possibility for something the attorneys general may do, try to recover health care costs from obesity, going after the companies that they say might be driving it? Yes, um, especially let's look at some of the recent um, studies that have come out. A study out of Harvard just linked uh, obesity to a certain group of foods and beverages, highly processed products. And I think more and more studies are coming out to really link the food environment to the obesity uh, epidemic in the U.S. And as those studies are coming out, we really do have a, a perfect defendant. It's a group of companies creating products, marketing them to people, and creating an environment where this, these are the majority of products that are available to the majority of the population. And especially people living in food deserts, some of them don't have access or resources to purchase whole foods. Um, and so I, I would definitely argue that this is an area for the attorneys general to get involved and they could initiate litigation similar to the tobacco litigation. Um, and, and I think that this would be an exciting area to even if they to test out. You know, another area that I'd like to talk to you about shifting gears again is the, the, uh, the question about whether government has the legal authority to regulate the conduct of business, not necessarily the marketing. That's another matter that we've already talked about. But the business practices and conduct, and I guess the most recent example of this is Mayor Bloomberg and the Health Department in New York City proposing to limit the uh, size of beverages that can be sold in places where they have jurisdiction. That would be restaurants, movie theaters, and, and food cart-related places. Um, tell me what you can if, about this issue of regulating business conduct. Actually, this is a really exciting area because many times when the government has attempted to regulate speech, as the cases I was just talking about, about alcohol and tobacco, when they were attempting to regulate marketing, the Supreme Court struck down those regulations but actually said to the governments, there are other alternatives for you to act, and this is the regulation of conduct. The Supreme Court itself has suggested other to- other topics or- that the government could take on, and they are all versions of regulating conduct, increasing prices through taxation, regulating the amount of uh, an ingredient in a product, 
or again, serving size is another regulation of conduct. And the government has complete authority to regulate conduct. There are no First Amendment issues, and there really are no other uh, constitutional problems with government regulating business conduct or actually consumer conduct. Uh, governments do this all the time. States and local governments have the police power to regulate health, safety, and welfare, and Mayor Bloomberg's proposal is exactly an an example of this type of regulation of conduct for the furtherance of health and welfare of its citizens. So these are not crazy solutions, and it's just really in line with the law to for the government to regulate conduct. As I said, taxation is another regulation of conduct for when it comes to tobacco products, for example. They've increased the price for the exact purpose of trying to regulate people's purchase of tobacco products. And serving size restrictions are exactly the same. The whole purpose is to encourage people not to purchase these products or several cups of the of the sugary beverages. So state and local governments have wide latitude to regulate conduct to further public health and welfare. And I would encourage governments to really step out and try to take exciting measures and propose new initiatives such as New York City because this is within their realm of authority. So I, there are a number of examples that come to mind about government regulating industry conduct. <clears throat> so example would be a company wouldn't be permitted to make toys with small pieces that would be choking hazards, or a convenience store wouldn't be permitted to sell cigarettes except from behind the counter, or a state might declare that alcohol cannot be sold on Sundays, for example. These seem to be all examples of government doing this quite routinely in ways that we accept. Yes, and um, there are other examples in the food area that uh, New York State had a bill that proposed uh, regulating the sale of junk food in checkout aisles. And so th the point of the bill was to keep junk food and sugary beverages out of checkout aisles so people wouldn't purchase them uh, while waiting online when they really weren't planning to purchase them in the first place. But also um, in California, they banned the sale of tobacco in pharmacies. And that's another type of regulation of conduct uh, that the Ninth Circuit upheld. So we can see these types of examples all over and they can be applied to food. Okay, so it, it, it'll require political will in order to actually get these things passed and voters would have to support them. That's a whole nother level of discussion. But from what you're saying, government has the authority to do these things, and if the industry challenged government in court, it sounds like it would be unlikely that industry would prevail. Yes, it's really a question of political authority. State and local governments have a police power where they can regulate to further public health and welfare, and so many options like this are within their control. So several of the examples we talked about were regulating portion sizes, having candy-free checkout aisles and things. Are there other examples of where you think this whole conduct business might go? Well, taxation is a regulation of conduct um, also that we discussed. But Well, what about things like um, having nutrition criteria for what can be at eye level for a child in a supermarket, things like that? Yes, I think that if you regulate location based on nutrition criteria of the product, that would very much not um, be a problem for the First Amendment. And if you regulated um, the sale of items such as toys in, in restaurants, uh, accompanying a Happy Meal based on nutrition criteria, this again would be a regulation of conduct. It's just simply about the sale of the toy. Um, so yes, if, using nutrition criteria to enact a regulation would be a very valid method for government. Good. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. I'd like to end with the following question. 
uh, if you could read the tea leaves and see where this is going and, you know, attorneys paying attention to this issue, are you optimistic with more, more attorneys becoming interested in this, the application of the law in creative ways? Do you think the law is going to be an important player in helping address the world's obesity problem? I think the law is becoming the most important player, and I definitely have uh, high hopes. In fact, I think the Supreme Court's recent conservative decisions that have been really supporting corporate rights and corporate speech rights are empowering and really energizing lawyers that want to protect consumers and want to protect public health and want to protect children to get involved and really go after um, the practices that are harming our society. And I think that the more and more this happens, and as it is occurring more and more, we're really seeing a, a shift in our in our nation's thinking about marketing to children and health claims on products that are not healthy. And I, I think this shift will really empower uh, political movements, grassroots movements, and lawyers to keep getting involved. And I do see a, a bright future that uh, we, we just have to keep keep going on this, and we're going to make it. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that because the dealing with obesity is going to have to take the input from many, many disciplines, and the law is one, one important one. I agree with that. So it's really nice to hear your optimistic projections about where this may go. So thank you very much. Thank you. Our guest was Jennifer Pomeranz, Director of Legal Initiatives at the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Please see our website, www.yaleruddcenter.org, where you'll find a variety of resources on food and food policy issues, including a list of the other podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.